So I think the most important thing is to understand what you want to build in the future. So what is that vision that you have for your product beyond what you are building today? And then have a very clear roadmap of what you want to do with the capital that you're trying to raise and really explaining how you are going to achieve it, how those funds will help you do it. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Today I have Cristina Villa from Cledera on the show. Welcome to the show, Cristina. Yes. Hi, Phil. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. So could you tell us a little bit about your product and what problem does it solve? Yes, definitely. So we help companies discover, buy, manage and cancel all the different software subscriptions that they have in their companies. And essentially what we do is we help them bring those internal processes to help them manage it end to end and to help them scale their businesses. Got it. So are you trying to help them maybe cancel the things they don't need and sign up for things they need? Is that part of the solution or not? Yeah, that's part obviously of the journey of software in a company. So maybe there is something new that you could be benefiting from. So we help you discover that. And maybe you realize that there is something that you're paying for that you're actually never using. So then we just give you that visibility so that as a business, you can take the decision that you think is best for you. That's awesome. I think in today's world, there's so many products that we are using and it's hard to make the decision. There's so many options of things that could help you, but there's also things that maybe you bought that you're not using. So that's definitely a big problem. It's cool to have some product and someone to help you solve the problem. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about, about the story behind and why did you decide to strike out on your own and start this company? So when I was at the previous uh, startup, so I was working for a neobank where we were building a, start a neobank for emerging markets, essentially. And there I was managing the middle and back office operations and we were growing quickly. We were in need of new processes, new teams all the time. And as part of my role of streamlining things within the company, it meant that I had to have an eye over all the different software subscriptions that the different teams were using to power those processes and to help them with their work. And what I realized there is that it was a very hard exercise because by the time that I would finish going through everybody and asking, what do you use? Why are you using it? Essentially, there were 10 more products in the company. And I just couldn't understand that there wasn't a system to help us keep track of that. And that's why looking a little bit, obviously, at the market and how everybody was shifting to using more and more software products within the company, I decided a solution had to exist, which it's uh, Cladara today. That's great. I love the story and I see a lot of products that start like that. It's called the user method. So you were the user, you had a problem and you wanted to go and solve that problem for yourself. And then, but how did you know that there were other people that would have the same problem 
And what do you think made you the right founder to go solve that problem? So I spoke with several companies in London, that is where we were based. And I asked them how they manage all their software applications. And everybody told me the same answer with a spreadsheet or we just don't manage it. And when you get that feedback from everybody, then it's when you know, well, actually there is a problem here because we all recognize that it's hard to manage, but we don't find anything. And that's how I decided that was a worthwhile enterprise to build. And then in terms of why I'm the right founder, I guess I just was passionate about bringing a solution to the world. I had, as you say, right, I lived it first hand and I just, yeah, wanted to do it. And I always wanted to have my own company. So it's like everything came together at that moment for me to just do it. That's awesome. Like, so you found the problem, you had the passion, you validate the idea with other companies, and then you went to build. How did you build the first version of your product and how did you fund it? So, well, let's start with the funding because that came first. <laughs> okay. So, of course, well, I quit my job. So, <laughs> to start with that, <laughs> because I'm, if something I'm not good is at uh, doing two things at the same time. So, I really like to dedicate myself in full to what I do. And then I went out to raise some funds from angels. And then I had some initial conversations and I got the first capital for the company. And then with that, what I wanted to achieve was to put an MVP to market that would prove that the way in which we're approaching the problem and the solution was something that would really help customers with that problem in their companies. And therefore, yes, so raise that capital. I think it was one month after deciding that I wanted to do Cledara. And by, I think in a couple of months more, we had the first MVP to market. That's awesome. So you were like, I'm out in, I'm going to quit my job and go raise the money. Did you have any experience raising money before? How was the process? Not at all. I didn't have any experience raising money. So that was one of the, I would say, hardest things that I had to do at the very beginning because I had never done it. So I didn't know what to expect. So I remember that for every half an hour investor meeting, I would spend three hours preparing. Like, what are all the possible questions that they may ask? Make sure that you have them nailed down. What's good? What's not good? And yeah, it was... For me, it was very hard, but mostly because, yeah, I I just had never done it before. So I, it took me, I would say 10 to 20 investor meetings to then start being very comfortable. And when I was having those calls and those meetings. Okay. And so to talk about 22 investors meetings, so I got comfortable. How many meetings did it take to actually raise the money? The first one, not that much, actually. And that's because for the first one, so I spoke mostly with some mentors from Techstars. So that was much more friendly. And there, I would say that was raised quite quickly. But then for the subsequent round, so the pre-seed, there is where you already go to these very early stage funds. And that was different. So for me, the stakes were already higher. So I wanted to make sure that I did a good job on those. Makes sense. And so what kind of tips would you have for someone that's starting right now and is like ready to go the route and trying to raise money? What do you tell that person to help the person get going? Something you should knew at that point. 
I think the the most important thing is to understand what you want to build in the future, right? So what is that vision that you have for your product beyond what you are building today? And then have a very clear roadmap of what you want to do with the capital that you're trying to raise and really explaining how you are going to achieve it, how that those funds will help you do it. And I think bringing that clarity to investors helps a lot. That's awesome. So, and that goes perfect onto my next question. So now you have the money. Let's go a little bit deeper. How you use that money? Who did you hire first? Because you used that money to build your MVP, the first round. Of course, you did other rounds. But let's go over the first one. How you decide to use that money and yeah. who you hire first and how things went. The first capital that we raised was yeah, to put the MVP to market. So the first thing was finding a couple of engineers that would work on the product to build it. I was the product designer and person talking to customers all day long because that is the most important thing that you can do at the very beginning, right? Talk to lots and lots and lots of customers and or prospective customers or people that may know your space so that you can get a lot of feedback and you can make sure that on that first version, you are building something that people actually want and not just maybe your ideas based on your own experience only, which after all is just one data point. So that's very, very important. So I would spend a lot of time talking to people and then creating those first designs to then give them to the engineers to build it. And that was a very nice moment when there with some designs that I thought were pretty slim and they told me, no, 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 all these things can also go away. These are nice to have. And the reality is that, yeah, at the time they were nice to have. So we decided to remove them and really only bring to market what we thought would enable that first bit of value that customers would benefit from. And then after bringing this MVP to market, then I was a solo founder at that point. So the most important thing for me was then to find someone that would help me from a co-founder perspective. So brought that person in. Brad, which I'm very proud that he joined because he's very strong on the whole go-to-market and partnership side of businesses. He also has a very, very strong operational mind. So, so I'm delighted that he decided to join Clevera. And I think that's, again, one of those important things. No, I, I think it's good to know what your weaknesses are so that you can bring someone that can complement them. And sometimes maybe at the very beginning of a company, you don't really know it. But once you already have something on, you have clarity and you really know what you need to succeed. And after the co-founder, the first hire was a junior person in marketing, Pablo. He's still with us and he's great. That's awesome. So I really like your approach to bring your co-founder. So many times people want to do like early, early days. So you build something, you figure out what you really need. And then you went to look for the co-founder. Do you believe that made it easier to find the co-founder, to bring that person in? Maybe he had a job and had to leave that job too. So do you like that delay approach to bring a co-founder? Do you think, what's your opinion on that? So in my opinion, it worked very well for me. And I was very determined to just get started. And I was not going to wait to have a co-founder ready to get started. And I do think that it helped us move very, very quickly at the time, because in the end, what do you need to re on? You need to talk to customers and build product, everything else. I mean, there is no need for anything else. And then as soon as we had the product that we 
could sell, then, well, we needed all those skills that we didn't have in the company. And that was the perfect moment. So having, I mean, in the end, again, it depends on who you bring early on. But uh, in my case, it worked very well. I have to say that, of course, when I was talking to investors very, very early on, a lot of them wanted me to have a co-founder. And if it was a technical co-founder, even better. But yeah, I just disagreed with that approach. And that's fine, you know, in the end, uh, there are investors that don't think that all recipes need to work for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great insight. Exactly. You did it in a different way and it worked for you. And I can just see in the room, the investors giving you pushback because they didn't have that person yet. But I can also see how bringing that person later is a great advantage for you because you brought the right person and the person already brought you knew your vision when they come on board. Like you say, you're ready to take customers. And then you went to look for that person. But talking about being ready to take customers, who was your first customer? How you got the first customer? And then how you got the next 10 and the next 100? It's like, if you could like walk us through that, the process. Yeah. So the first customers. So when we launched our MVP, we decided to do it at the conference called SAS Talk in Dublin, which is the main uh, SaaS conference in Europe. And then we did it on stage because we signed up for their startup competition. And I thought, okay, I'm going to join the competition and I'll win. So I'll be able to do it on stage. So very confident there. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily everything went my way. So I did win it and I could announce the launch of the, of our MVP. And from that, obviously, there was an audience. So I spoke to some people afterwards, and that's how we found our first customers. And then also from network, people that we knew, that we knew had the problem, they offered to help us essentially by using the product, giving us feedback, what they would like to see, what not. So that was, I would say, for the first, yeah, 10 customers, 10, 15 customers came from that event and from network. And then after that, we started doing a little bit more of, okay, trying to be on social media, trying some outbound emails. We were trying things and that didn't really, nothing really worked very well at the beginning, I have to say, but events were working well because what we realized is if we spoke to people and we explained them the problem that we were solving, people would identify very well with it. And then what we realized is that, well, the product had to evolve a little bit more for us to be able to really sell it through other channels. And then I would say, yeah, so the first 50 came more like, let's say, slowly as we were continuing to build the product to with more features and making it a bit richer. And then, yes, we started creating our go-to-market function after we raised our seed round in November 2020. And from there, we just yeah created an outbound team that's done a, a great job of taking us from those about, yes, yeah, 60, 70 customers to almost 800 today. So... That's awesome. I love your lunch idea. So you're like, I'm going to join this competition. I'm going to win. And everything went your way. That's awesome. And in what stage, right? In the biggest SaaS conference that was happening in Europe. Is that correct? That's the biggest SaaS conference over there? Yes, that's correct. That's awesome. So you went and people love it. People saw it. And you got your, I love the idea because you really leverage the opportunity to be in the stage, to see people in your industry. And it looks like that's how you kept doing, right? So you went to events 
where you know they were related to your industry and that worked for a while. I saw that work well with many other SaaS to the early stages. If you have events in your industry, you can keep going there. And I like how you also say that when you first try outbound or other marketings, it didn't work because your product wasn't ready for it yet. And then you had to improve your product. And then eventually with the right product, you were able to really scale for over 600 customers. Congrats. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And it's this, right? That something didn't work early on. It, now it's working very well, right? So that's why you always need to try again. Like never leave it as, oh, no, no, that will never work. No, like, hey, things have changed. We've evolved. So let's give it another shot. And, and it worked very well. So it's working very well. Awesome. That's an amazing sight. And you were listed by Forbes, by one of the 20 women that's changing Spain. How did that help you or didn't help you hiring, bringing customers, grow your business? So these type of awards or public recognitions by companies like Forbes, what this helps is a lot with building trust with companies because in the end, when they look for you, they find that we are a serious company. We are recognized by what we are doing, that we are doing something that's impactful for businesses all over the world. And because the way in which companies work today is changing. So therefore, we are building a solution to help those companies that are changing with the new technologies and by adopting SaaS. So yeah, I would say the thing that it helps the most is building trust with your customers, with your audience. And then obviously for me personally, I'm very proud that they decide to look my way to give that recognition. Yeah, that's amazing. Congrats. That's pretty impressive. Thank you. <laughs> so what has been your biggest challenge to date? So we talk a little bit about early days, your company now, it's been going for four years. And what has been the biggest challenge to date? I would say the biggest challenge for a company that's going very well and that is growing very fast. So we are growing 20% month on month. It's just crazy. So we are just scaling, changing constantly. We need to hire people all the time and we need to make sure that as we continue growing our customer base, that we can continue providing them with a great service, a great product. Obviously, the more customers, the more diverse customer base that you get, even though we try to be very targeted to which type of customers we serve. But still, right? So you want to make sure that that you can have a product that will work for the majority, but the more customers you have, the more that you need to look closely at what you have to adapt it. And I think for me, that is, this is one of those biggest challenges that we are facing, I would say constantly. It's those growing pains, right? Of just, okay, now we have more customers, so we need to increase customer support. And now we've released this feature, but this feature needs some assistance. And it's like all these constant changing, which I love at the same time, right? So I love the challenge. So that's actually good for me that it's a constant thing. <laughs> That's great. So the scaling and the making sure you can serve the different kind of customers. So at what point did you know that you built something that people love and that would last? When I started it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as soon as I said, okay, I want to build Cladata, I want to build a product that will help companies with their manage their software in their companies and scale with it. I knew that we were building something that was needed. And that was needed for the long term, 
the it was not like a hype thing, like something that we'll use for the next five years and then will disappear, right? So we are here to build a category-defining business that will last years and years and years. So that's what we set up to do. We are changing an industry. So yeah, I just knew that it would last forever. <laughs> That's great. So you never had a, in your mind, do I have product market fit? Am I building something that people want? You knew from day one, because of your experience, that people really need the product and you already, in your mind, had the product market fit. So I knew that people wanted it, even though they didn't know yet, right? Because when I was speaking with customers early on, people were like, no, we only have 10, 20 subscriptions. It's not an issue. And the reality is that, well, that wasn't true, right? Maybe you think you have 20, but actually you have 45. So you do need it, right? And I think within these four years that we've been building Hedara, the market has changed. And now the market recognizes that they have an issue and with companies recognize that they have an issue with their software and they are looking for solutions. And for me, that Again, I had that clarity when I started and I knew that it was just a matter of educating the market and building a product that would truly help companies when companies were ready to recognize that they had that problem. And now is obviously that moment. And now what we need to make sure is that we continue building this great product that continues helping customers over time. In terms of, so you then you say, right, product market fit, that's different. So one thing is having the certainty that we're building something that will last. The other one is once you reach product market fit. And that, of course, took longer because at the beginning, well, the product was very basic, right? So it was only the those your crazy early adopters <laughs> were the ones that, that would use it. And it was perfect because in the end, what you need is people that believe in your vision and that they're willing to give you or dedicate you their time to help you shape your ideas and help you uncover situations, paths that you had not yet thought of. And for us, product market feed, I would say came, it depends on how you define it, but for us, it came, I say after the seed round, which is where we really started selling more. You would talk to someone, show the product they would buy. And then it was, okay, now we just need to scale this. So, and that was the moment that we knew, okay, now we definitely have product market fit because you just have more conversations with more customers and you just sell more. So then for us, that was the moment. Yeah, I like the separation. You knew even before product market fit, you were building something to last. You were very confident that you just have to figure out the features and what people need and how to improve the product. But you were extremely confident all the way this is going to last. I'm building a product that people really need. I'm going to educate them and I'm going to keep improving. So it was never a question. I need to find product market fit to know I'm going to last. I'm going to last. I just need to find product market fit and this is going to scale. Exactly. So it looks like that's the approach that you took. That's awesome. And so how has been, like, as you keep growing and going to new raises, how it's been your relationship with your investors and how much did they help you along the way? It's been great. I love my investors. They are very helpful. I would say I speak with them definitely every couple of weeks. We always have a chat about where we are, things that we need, things that we are thinking of. And I would say that the closer you can keep your investors, the better, because then they can help you even more. And then they understand the decisions that you take. Because 
after all, investors, of course, they want you to grow like a rocket ship, but they equally they know that the path is not a straight path, right? So it's important to build that trust so that you can really call them if you need to, to ask a question. Hey, look, we are facing this. And how have you seen other portfolio companies address this in the past? Because they've invested in many companies before, right? So they've seen a lot. So leveraging, we leverage that a lot. I personally do. And also for good things, right? When something great happens, I give them a call. Hey, look what happened, right? It's fantastic. Somebody that we really wanted to hire accepted an offer or we just hit the 800 number in terms of customers. So I think this is important to build that relationship. And I would say that I'm lucky that I have great investors with Nauta and with um, Anthemus and Notion. That's awesome. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And I think, again, you give people a great advice here, like stay closer to your investors so they understand what's going on. They can help you when things get harder. They can help when things are going well too. That's great insight. So in the early days, what was your biggest fear? Early days, biggest fear. Hmm. So if I think about it, I would say first, those investor meetings, because as they right? So I was preparing for three hours to be able to go to one of those. And I wanted to make sure that I did a good job because in the end, the company depended on that funding to be able to continue. And then the second one would be the customer calls. Because again, I was never in a sales position before. So I remember the first time I had to give a demo to a customer. I was so nervous. <laughs> I wrote a whole script for myself. It's okay. These are all the things that I definitely want to touch on as I'm going through the product to show it to them. And then I realized that writing a script doesn't really work. <laughs> so I just had to have bullet points to remember that these are the key things that I want to make sure I say, but I don't need to write it verbatim. And mostly because those are very important moments, right? So those are interactions that I'm having with people outside of the company that it's very important that we look professional, that people trust us, that we are prepared, that we are ready. Then we may not be for them. From an investor perspective or from a customer perspective, maybe you are not the best company for them. But that's okay as long as you look presentable and you are prepared and you can answer questions. So that was my early days. I was just paranoid about preparing for those calls that I had just never, I didn't have experience. I even asked one of my early angel investors to join me on a few of the customer calls to give me feedback afterwards as to how could I improve? Because otherwise, like, how do I improve if I don't see it, right? See, if I don't, if nobody's there. So he very kindly offered his time and he gave me great feedback. And yeah, so now I'm, yeah, very comfortable in front of investors, very comfortable in front of customers. I actually love talking to customers. So, yeah. I love how you took your fear and you work on it. You were afraid of going to those meetings with the investors. Then you prepare three hours for it. So you work on it. You did something about it. You want to improve your demos and how you did show the demo, the software. You invite your investor to give you feedback. I think that's a great insight. Just because you have a fear doesn't mean you shouldn't move. And as you move, you can think about what can I do extra? How can I prepare better? How can I get strong at this thing that I'm weak right now? And it's today 
a little bit later, it's not your early days anymore. You're like, yeah, I love stuff with investors. I love speaking with customers. Now it's a strong suit for you. And I think, again, that's an amazing site for people. Like if you're afraid of something when you're starting a SaaS, just go heads on, prepare more, get someone to give you feedback and eventually going to get better at. So that's an amazing insight. Absolutely. I think as a founder, you have to have a strong learning mindset. You need to know that you will not know everything and that it's impossible that you know everything. And therefore, you just need to learn as much as possible. And for those things that you can't learn or that it's not the best investment of your time to learn, then you just hire great people around you to help you with those. So, yeah. Then you learn to hire great people. So you have to learn something too. Yes, that's the other one. And that's very important. Yeah. What do you think it's a, something that early stage SaaS founders should start doing that you don't see most founders doing? So I would say that founders need to be talking to customers all the time, or at least people that know about your sector, the product that you're trying to build, the problem that you're trying to solve. Very early on, when I was designing the first version, I was almost always at home, right? Because, well, you're like three people, so you almost, you talk, but you don't really need to see each other because you are very focused on just getting those things, let's say in my case, those designs forward. And then at some point I realized, well, but I'm just designing based on my own thoughts. That's not good. So then I set myself a KPI to talk to at least five people every day, right? So then whether it's mentors or investors or is this even competitors or people that work in a tangential area. So just have conversations and learn how people talk, how people think, what do they think? Why would they buy? Why not? Why they object? And with that, I learned many things. I learned that sometimes the way I communicated what we are building wasn't clear. So people thought we were building something different and it helped me polish that. And then it also helped me realize what was really the language that they were using so that we could incorporate that language in the product. So I would say those things are early on is very important. I don't think early stage founders do it enough because I include myself, right? So I had to be conscious about it before starting doing it. We just get caught on the, okay, let's just get stuff done, right? But sometimes having those conversations is getting stuff done, is advancing your thinking. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a concept that Stephen Blank called getting out of the building. Let's get out, let's talk to people. And of course, nowadays it could be jump on a Zoom call, but let's chat with someone and just not be building alone. I love that advice. And what founders should stop doing in the early days that you see maybe people doing and they're like, that's a waste of time. I think, and again, here maybe I have a different approach, I don't know, but I would say anything that is not talking to customers or building product, forget about it <laughs> because it doesn't matter early on. <laughs> so sometimes people get too caught into metrics and things because they go to an investor meeting and the investor asks, and hey, look, that's great that they ask and they want to know, but actually that doesn't necessarily advances you on your building of your product and being able to offer that service or product to your customers. So I would say, of course, you need to keep an eye if something is terribly wrong. And if it's terribly wrong, then you will definitely want to look at that. But don't just do things that are nice to have. Just do things that are must-haves. 
the truly advance you that have a massive impact. So I would say that's my recommendation early on because we are very skilled at creating work for ourselves. So make sure that the work you create really, really advances. And maybe the one that really moves you is the uncomfortable one, right? Like me, demos. I had to do demos and I didn't like demos at the time because I didn't know how to do them. I felt very uncomfortable, but well, I just did them. And then that helped us a lot. I really like what you said. I think when you think about nice have and must have, it's a skill that as a founder you have to develop. And even from the beginning, when we met with your engineers and they help you really find out what was the must have, I think we don't say no enough as a founder. We have to get more familiar with saying no to the things that we shouldn't be doing right now. And like you say, and challenge yourself to do the things that you have to do it, that you must do it, because it's, it's easy to get yourself busy, but not be doing the things that's going to really move the needle. And that's an amazing device. Now let's talk about more specifically you. If you could go back in time and meet Christina from 2018 and give her one advice, you have 30 seconds, what would you tell her? <laughs> focus and always keep your focus. <laughs> that's what I would tell her because it's so important. Because it helps you with the saying no. So if you know what you're building, if you know where you are going, if you are talking to a lot of customers, obviously customers will ask you for things that maybe don't fit your vision and you just need to be confident in saying no. That's awesome. Could you share a little bit an example where you wish you had to stay focused and then you had to come back and refocus yourself? Yes. So for example, we early on, we are building a product, which is to help companies manage software. Of course, companies pay for a lot of things and want to manage a lot of things through our platform. And sometimes those are not software. Sometimes it can be tempting. Okay, why wouldn't you do it? And you talk to investors and they tell you, yeah, why wouldn't you do it? And then you start thinking, okay, why would I not do it? And then you start or I started thinking too much about it. And then even some small features we created to accommodate for some of that. But then very quickly we said, no, 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 this is diverting us from the bigger vision of the product. And maybe today it feels good, but on the long term, it's going to be a hassle and doing it, it will be much harder. So then we just said no. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. And making those decisions, thinking about the future, it is a challenge and we always keep learning, keep getting better at. So Christina, it was amazing to have you in the show. I think we touched on a lot of topics that will really help those early stage SaaS founders. I have only two more questions before we go. The first one, it's what book are you reading right now? Or if you're not reading anything right now, what book you've read lately that you recommend that everyone should read, that founder should read? So the book that I'm reading right now is the fiction one. So I think that that doesn't apply for it. It's called Violetta from Isabel Allende. But the one that I would recommend for the audience of this podcast, since you say it's uh, for early stage SaaS founders, is one called The Great CEO Within from with the author is Matt Mockery, I think. It's one book that I bought back in 2019. And still today, I carry it everywhere I go with me because it has, it's a very practical book. It's very, it talks about the different topics that you need to be able to grow a company in a very succinct way. 
And sometimes I just need to say, okay, what about this? Let me just quickly look for the chapter that talked about this. It's two paragraphs. And then it just gives you like a direction again. So for every stages, I think it's a great uh, book. That's awesome. I'm going to pick it up that book. Sounds like a CEO manual. What am I supposed to do now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It helps you. That's awesome. And what are you currently excited about and motivated by? So the U.S. So we started selling in the U.S. at the beginning of the year. And we already have customers. So the U.S. market is growing at like 30, 40%. So it's crazy. And we don't even have a team on the ground there, which is why I'm very excited because from September, we will be relocating there and we will start building a team on the ground. And I think that's going to be an amazing moment for Cladara and the team and our customers on the ground there. That's very exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to see you guys keep growing here in the United States. Again, thank you very much for your time today. Congrats on the amazing product you're building. Thank you very much, Phil. It's been a great chatting to you today. Ciao. <laughs> awesome. Ciao. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.